We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal put on a masterclass against Burnley at the Emirates in showing why more additions are needed. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, um, I would say that that was a masterclass in showing Adu and and the rest of the leadership at Arsenal that that a, si- a signing might be needed. Maybe at striker, perhaps. Maybe even at midfielder. So bravo to Arsenal. Well done. Uh, I am recording from an undisclosed location uh, on undisclosed equipment. But basically, like, it's a computer and a microphone. But it's it's not obviously my regular space, my regular equipment, my regular time of day, uh, actually just past 7 a.m. And so uh, I, I, for one, am very happy to be awake and alive on this beautiful day discussing Arsenal nil, Burnley nil at 7 in the morning. But, yeah, that's what we do. That's how we roll. Uh, we're going to tell you how to shave your privates, and we're going to tell you how to get hired. We're going to do all the things we do. We've got 18 days to get through all this together. We're going to be talking transfers uh, later on in the week. We're going to continue to do scouting videos. If there's anyone, it appears we're scouting. We're going to continue to do all that. But today is about the game that really, I I imagine, must have been a thrill to be at for Clive, who's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. A thrill to be there, as as I indicated. Yeah, it was a thrill. Just sat there, went through it. We, I sort of knew. Me and Tim were just talking beforehand. We said we all knew it's a nil nil or a one nil game, but this is what we do. <laughs> we spend our money, <laughs> we eat all the food and the drinks, and we give the club everything we got, knowing what's coming. And that's yeah. People were a little down. I think if any, if the club needs to do anything, it's either sign players or put out a really good Adidas hype video. So one of those two things should fix it. And uh, yeah, Tim's on Twitter. It's still better. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Um, were you at the game? I oh, no, was the women's not. game. I yeah. was at the women's game. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we had, we had, you know we were missing the big moments player uh, for the men's team, but not for the women's <laughs> team, huh? No, uh, Tobin Heath gets um, a 93rd minute, you know, opportunity in the penalty area. Probably not that dissimilar to Lacazette's. Um, she had quite a few more people in front of her. Um, but yeah, Arsenal men do not have a Tobin Heath for those moments um, no. because she stayed calm and converted. Um, and Arsenal got a, a very handy point away at City as a result. Whereas 
Well, we all saw what happened with the men's team against Burnley and I think in other games over the last month or so. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think there may be some split on the the level of disappointment or frustration about this performance and this result. I I found myself super frustrated by it, but I, I think, you know, Clive, you, you touched on this. I think going into this game, it, the odds were never very good that it was just going to be an absolute dominant performance. This was a weak Burnley team, but a Burnley team with a good defensive record. And this is obviously a, a weary and weakened Arsenal team just trying desperately to get to the break to get players back. And I do think we put out the best lineup we could. And, and maybe we'll come back to that in a second. But I, I just think in terms of measuring against expectation, this was a game where we knew it was going to come down to a couple of moments to turn the tide. I mean, we had that maybe 10 or 15 minute period of where we were absolutely running riot, I think in the second half and didn't convert. And other than that, it was pretty slim pickings. But I mean, is that really just it for you that this was always going to be them defending us, maybe lacking a little cutting edge and it was going to come down to a big moment and we didn't have the person to, to secure the points in the big moment. Yeah. I think they came to mug us basically. I think they came to get a one nil and then and then go from there and then sort of see that you know get a one nil hold the lead and then and, and then see if they can hold on to something a bit more stringent I, I, Burnley sometimes it's a case of knowing your enemy and we sort of they, they, they haven't changed they're four four two, two strikers that run about be out front they stay narrow sometimes give you the outside they were quite fresh you know mentally and quite fresh as they shuffled across the pitch and so I think it's just a case of knowing who they are, but teams are starting to know who we are. So what we do a lot, Ed, is we move the ball out to our two wide men, who are quite good, and everyone knows them, you know, and um, and teams are shuffling out to them, and they're doubling and tripling up against them. And they were doing that consistently really well early in the game. But as the game grew and the game got, they got a bit more tired, we were getting one-on-one isolations and we were getting in and we did have that punk rock 20 minutes period where we were really, really good. And then we didn't. And then it stopped. And then that's no doubt a discussion point. But Burnley are Burnley, right? They keep they defend the spaces where you can score the goals. So you need to decide what you're going to do to move them around those spaces. And Ben Mee and Charles Kowski know what they're doing in that box, defending deep. And um, it was a challenge for us and we didn't overcome it because we missed some chances. But there's a bigger discussion to have around our centre-forward, shall we say. <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, there is. And I mean, it, it feels bad to just put it all on the centre-forward. I mean, I, I think part of it is also because he's the senior leader of that attacking group. And, you know, I, I, I thought that there were moments where Martinelli was excellent, moments where Sacco was excellent. During our best period, Smith-Rowe had his best period before being taken off, which maybe we'll come to in just a little bit. But there is that sense that the old head in the middle, that striker guy, you know, yes, he he flubs the, the best chance, but just that that that's someone that we probably need a, a little more of of that big moment and product from. But Tim, let's roll back a little bit in in terms of the lineup. I think the first half, you know, we looked a little blunt, and and you look at the lineup we put out, and and I do think that this is a game that's going to call into question some decisions that were made just sort of strategically with the squad. I think on the instant reaction pod, Scott, Scott made the point that like there are problems here that weren't unforeseeable, both at midfield and maybe at fullback. And I can't help but look at 
this game and maybe the last series of games and say a lot of this probably would have gone different. I mean, heck, Thomas Party probably wouldn't have played against Liverpool. Like mm-hmm. if we had someone like an Ainsley Maitland-Niles, and I know we've talked about it again, I don't want to make it a huge talking point, but I really do find it hard to believe that Maitland-Niles couldn't be asked to say, hey, give us one more month for the club that raised you. You're going to play every game. You're going to be hugely important. And then you're going to go start your new adventure. And I find it hard to believe that after playing a crucial role for Arsenal through January, that a team would say, well, now we're not interested. But before we get get to some of the challenges on the pitch in the first half, I mean, how do you look at the team we had to put out and the way we've had to run through this period um, as it relates to some decisions with the squad, especially that one? Yeah, I, I think that one, you've got to look at it and say it's a big mistake. It's as simple as that. Whatever uh, reasons um, you find for it, it's a mistake. It stretched the squad. It meant that we had to play Tommy Asu at right back and now we've lost him. We lost him for this game. And it meant that we've had to throw particularly Thomas Partey. I think Jacka probably would have played at Anfield anyway. Um, and to be honest, I find it difficult to blame a Xhaka red card on anything else. But you know, um, it, like we wouldn't have even needed to keep Maitland Niles until this game. We only needed him until like the second leg of the Liverpool game. He could have got on a flight to Rome the next morning and done done the deal. And and you're right, like just play these four big games for us and then go and play for Roma. That's fine. And and you know what? Even if he's like a little bit upset by that, fuck it. He's our player. He's under contract. We're paying him. <laughs> like, I, I feel sometimes we're a little bit, I, I get it, in an attempt to be understanding about situations and things like that, um, you know, it, as I guess a little bit of a blowback to people who talk about footballers like they aren't humans. Sometimes we go too far the other way. And it's like, sorry, if you go to work on Monday and your boss asks you to do something, you do it. it you know, assuming it's within your job description, you do it. Or hitting me at a time when that resonates very deeply. So, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah. In a hotel for a week, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that, that that's what working life is, right? You're you're paid to do a job and you do it. And and I feel like sometimes in an attempt to not be like those people who talk about footballers like robots, we go too far the other way. So even if Maitland Niles wasn't happy with that, tough shit. Do it. We let you go in like two and a half weeks. You'll play four games in a row. That will be absolutely fine. Like you're not gathering rust here. You'll be an important player for us. It will be good for you. It'll be good for us. And you know. If you're if you're upset about it, well, you know, in three weeks it won't be anyone's problem anymore. So, I, you know, at, at the time when it happened, we discussed it, and I thought, okay, maybe I'll hold off because surely there's someone coming in. T- to let that happen with no one coming in, sorry, mistake, costly, simple as that. And um, the manager and and uh, the technical director have to own that. Uh, someone sent me, um, it was Ole Gunner on Twitter, sent me an interesting tweet actually about this because, you know, we, we've burned some of our squad players this month. Mm. And um, I guess I'm conscious that, that I have criticised Arteta for flip-flopping on some of the squad players and not making firm decisions over them. So I'm not upset per se about, you know, someone like Maitland-Niles going. I think it clearly had to happen. But you replace them. <laughs> like, that. Has, that's the thing that has to happen. And it mm. kind of feels like, I, I think one of the interesting challenges for Arteta, we can see the next stage of this squad build, midfielder, striker, but filling out some of those squad players. Because, like, a lot of our squad players are going this summer. Nketiah, Chambers, Elneny, all out of contract. Kolasinac is gone. They need to fill those squad roles again. And how does Arteta manage squad players? Because... 
there seems to be this, you're either all the way in or all the way out. But you can't have 25 players that are all the way in or all the way out. You need squad players. And um, Ole Gunnar, he's, he sent me a really interesting tweet, which was, in an attempt to be decisive, has Arteta... Well, he said that Arteta has forgotten that part of management is managing grey areas. And, uh, and I thought that was a really interesting comment. And like I say, I know it's difficult because I know I've complained about him like not being decisive about these players sometimes. Um, but this, yeah, I'm sorry, they, they dropped the ball on that one. Regardless of the reasons, I think it's cost Arsenal pretty dearly. Well, it's, it can kind of be both, right? Because in a way, we could have been decisive with Maitland-Niles in previous windows when there was actual money being offered, I think by Wolves mm-hmm. at one point. Um, collected the money and known we had to replace him. But by not really making a decision, we wind up in a situation in a January in the middle of a season when depth is an issue, then feeling like we've got to let him go when we can't replace him. So, yep. you know, the, the lack of decisiveness in the, in the earlier opportunities led to a problem later. And I mean, I don't want to really dig up stuff like Ganduzi and things like that and all that. But like, you do get to a point when like, when player situations resolve in that way, you do create a problem for yourself because you have to backfill those positions somehow. And it can be really hard. Like a 19 year old who's developing into something really good, who you don't have to go out and buy, who's just there developing is a really handy thing to have. And when that player turns out to be a complete jerk and you have to get rid of them or feel that you have to, you know, immediately get them out of the team. I understand that. But like, then you have something you have to backfill and like, it's unlikely you're going to be able to do that with some 19-year-old. Maybe what we've seen with Sambi Lakanga, for example, is good young player, developing young player. Is he ready to be a starter in a single pivot in a Premier League midfield? And I think we're getting the answer that maybe not quite yet. Um, and again, that that's not to say that he won't be excellent. I think you know, being in a double pivot with a party or a Shaka next to you is very different than standing by yourself between the lines against Premier League opposition and and I, I don't think it went very well. And Clive, I, I do want to talk about some of the challenges we faced in the first half as a result. Burnley wanted us to go out wide, and we were more than happy to do it. And I think there was we sort of burned the first half for two reasons for me. One was, I think, just a lot of getting it up onto that left-hand side, which was very congested between Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, and Tierney, and some really pretty hopeless crosses into the, the teeth of, of their defense, the strength of their defense. And the other thing is, and I'm curious if you saw it the same way, I really felt that Sambi spent a lot of time standing in the shadow of his markers, that he that he did not really know how to show for the ball in a way that he was available. And as a result, we could very rarely build play through that area of the pitch. As a contrast, against Manchester City, who are pretty good at this stuff, Thomas Party was our leading passer. In that first half, Sambi was our fifth leading passer, I believe, fifth or sixth. So, like, you know, I, I just think that that role was a struggle for him. And as a result, we we went to the areas that Burnley wanted us to play. All right, so let's talk about centre midfield. So let's I talk about centre midfield. <laughs> let's talk about it, shall we? I think I let's focus. Uh, Maitland Niles always made us feel comfortable when he was in the squad. He can play left back, right back, wing back, both sides, and play centre midfield. Valuable player that we've mistreated over many, many years, and he's had attitude problems. We believe, and finally, he wants to go and play. You know what? The manager said you deserve to go and play. The real issue is the fact that. Um, our de facto captain got himself sent off, right? The other issue was the guy that we got lucky with, 
our same Thomas Party coming back with no Premier and uh, no, no missing Premier League games, gets himself sent off for the first time. To us, two senior 28, 29 year olds were not available. If they're available, we're not having this discussion, right? So, on the centre midfield thing, there is no other team of our level that's playing a 21 year old in a lone midfield pivot to basically run our attack from deep. No one else is doing it. I looked. At, if you look around the top leagues today, you've got Jacob Ramsey, who's playing in a free off the left for Aston Villa. You've got Curtis Jones playing for Liverpool sometimes as a 21-year-old. As a you look at look at the Chelsea guys. They're not going to have anybody of that age in the middle of their midfield. Look at Man City. They've got Rodri um, Fernandinho, 36-year-old warrior. Right? They're not going to have a 21-year-old holding their midfield. This problem is a problem that's off the pitch, not on the pitch. The fact this kid is doing this well at 21, we should be clapping him because he's overexposed and development is accelerating at, at, at real pace, at real pace. We are developing a player right in front of right. It's not perfect all the time. I thought he ended the game really well, by the way. Some of his passing was tremendous out to the right-hand side. But what we're doing is we're looking at what could we could have won and then we're comparing him to a 29-year-old, 28-year-old and, and Thomas Parry, etc., who is a top-level Champions League experienced international footballer. And so I thought Sambi was fine. And I look at this, I look at this team and I say to myself, okay, the centre midfield, I know what the issue is. We've got a kung fu artist, got himself sent off, and we've got a player that's probably unfortunate to get sent off in in exceptional circumstances, right? Yeah. Maybe at 2-0 maybe we should have took him off. You know, to save him for this game, I mean, we'd have been fine. We've lost a lot of centrality because we've lost Ben White in the central zone. We lost Party in the central zone. And by Odegaard being slightly to the right, we lost him in the central zone. And so what that meant was we were, we were playing out wide because our best pass to the ball from the back is Ben White and he was playing on the right. And so we ended up going wide. If he went to the left, we then switched to the right. Right. So, so just by losing those key players and pillars in our team for various reasons we are forced to play another way right so and so i see sambia as the least of the problems for me the fact that it playing holding affecting our build-up significantly i felt in the game and so i look at this team i see yeah set midfield i know exactly what the problem is we've got a we got we got shaka who we debate we got parties looking quite good until he's misdemeanor but we know we need one more in there of, of quality to really lift our levels. But the big area for me, mate, is up front. Because we know the next game against Wolves, we're going to have two centre midfielders available, ready to play. When we go to Wolves, we are still talking about the same strikers. And for me, this wasn't so much what happens on the pitch. For once, I think it's what's happening off the pitch regarding squad availability squad relationships, squad rebuilding, the pace by which it's done and the priority and order by which it's done has left us exposed. And so it's definitely for me an off-the-pitch problem at the moment that we have 10 days to fix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to get away from that because, look, we would all love, I mean, Tim, we would all love for Arsenal to just go out and smash teams. Every game, smash teams, 30 shots, you know, 4XG, five big chances, and eventually you take at least one of them, you win, fine. But, like, those aren't – that's not how football works, especially not when you're a team that's still developing. And, like, 
there are going to be games where you get two pretty decent chances and you need to take one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about the force of nature player. We've talked about the, you know, the player that can just win you things when it's not your best day. And, you know, could Martinelli become that player? Could Bukayo Saka become that player? They absolutely can. But we also have to try to take care of those players. I mean, we need to remember where they are in their careers. They are fantastic players. But it would be behoove the club to have someone in the middle who who can take a little of that burden off of them. And, you know, I, again, it's really hard because you're going to look back on that that chance, that pullback from Smith Rowe, that chance to lock his And I get it. Like, there's one thing XG has taught us, right, is that, even the good chances are 50-50, right? You don't you're not mm. going to score them every time, but this is this is still about human beings and human beings have a way of either showing up in the big moments or not. I I think that Lacazette is doing a lot of important things for us, but maybe not the thing that wins you football matches. I know you famously think the goals are overrated, so maybe that's not as big <laughs> a concern for you. Um but but I mean do, do you do you agree that it is really as simple as that or I mean do you think that mm-hmm. something about our our play has changed because the one thing I will say is I think the really, really excellent football we were playing before, you know, up to and including the Man City game, obviously the, the team has been so disrupted. But I, I, I do think that there's been a willingness to once again sort of go back to this funnel it out wide playing style that we saw in earlier stages when Arteta was here that that makes you very one dimensional. Yeah, I, I think that so there's a couple of things going on. I think the first thing to say is that Lacazette has always He's never really been a 90-minute player, even when we bought him. And because of the situation up front, we're asking him not just to be a 90-minute player, but to be a 90-minute, three-times-a-week player. And and he's definitely not that. And, you know, we were talking a month ago about how well he was playing. And I think a lot of that is, is physical because he's backing games up and he's he's never really been able to do that and he's not going to acquire that at this stage in his career. So I think there's that element to it as well. I do think it's fair to say he's probably quite tired. I think um, the, the interesting thing to me as well is everyone's looking for this player at the moment and that's what makes the market quite difficult. Um, for people who don't, I really recommend uh, subscribing to Grace Robertson's um, newsletter. And she wrote about this this week about like uh, the number nines. And if you look at the top scorers in the Premier League at the moment, like in the top 10 scorers, Jamie Vardy is like the only out and out nine. It's full of players like Smith Rowe actually is in there. Um, I guess Ronaldo's a nine now, but Salah, Mane, Hafinha. Uh, Son, players like this are scoring the goals at the moment. And, you know, City wanted Kane and then wanted Ronaldo. And Chelsea spent a fuck ton on Lukaku to be this player. So a lot of teams are looking for this, like, exclamation point player at the moment and, and none more so than Arsenal. And when you look at the last month, um, Nottingham Forest, tricky away game, not playing very well, nil-nil, chance falls to Eddie Nketiah, misses it. Everton... Tough away game, tougher than it should have been, but tough away game. We're 2-1 down, few minutes to go. Big chance falls to Eddie Nketiah, misses it. Burnley, 20 minutes to go, not playing very well. Burnley, very dogged in defence. Big chance for Lacazette, misses it. If even two of those go in, Arsenal season potentially looks very different at the moment. So I think that really makes your point for you, Elliot, that we didn't play well in any of those games I've referenced, but... We still made a chance in all of them to get something more than we did and pretty much missed it every time. Um, 
Yeah. And and so, you know, your point about moments, your point about needing that exclamation point player who who kind of shows up in those moments, absolutely, absolutely you need that. And and when even Pep Guardiola is looking for that player and thinks that that's the thing missing from his squad, you know how important it is. And you know how important it is when Chelsea go out and spend however much they spent on Lukaku to be that player. Yeah, and this is, I mean, again, this is not the, the discussion for the moment, <clears throat> but this is when decisions like re-signing and aging Aubameyang, for example, you know, these decisions matter because... When you do that, and this is, I know Clive hates the expression, it has to work. What I mean when I say it has to work is, if it doesn't, you've left yourself in a very, very bad position in a very, very important, uh, a very, very bad situation in a very important position. And so like, when you give Aubameyang 300 grand a week to be the guy that wins you those games in those moments at the very tail end of his career, you're not only doing two things, you're not only rolling the dice on an aging player, you're not backfilling the position. And so now we have a situation where we don't have the guy we really want at that position. We're trying to buy him desperately in January while still having the guy that's on 300000 a week who's not going to participate for us. So you know, these things are really difficult to solve. Clive, I, I don't want to pick on Kieran Tierney because he's such an important player. But I mean, as you look at games like this and you look around a pitch and you see 20, 21, 21, 22, and you say, who are the guys that – have the experience in their position, playing in their preferred position that can really make a difference. You know, Lacazette, all right, didn't get it done. Kieran Tierney would be another one. And I think he's a very important player and probably an underappreciated and undervalued player um, because we liked some of the energy and drive and chaos that Tavares brought when he was playing earlier in the season. But, like, I didn't think this was a particularly good Tierney game. I thought there was a lot of hit and hope crossing into, you know, the, the, the portion of their defense that's – the easiest for them to handle. Not a lot of, you know, his his cutbacks that he can be good at. He wasn't looking to cut inside, but he just felt the left-hand side didn't work particularly well in the first half in general because it felt to me like Smithrow, Martinelli, and Tierney were kind of it, just all in the same zone, and, and it, it didn't really cause Burnley a lot of trouble, and Tierney in particular I thought was a little one-dimensional. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something there. I'm being a little harsh on him, but I'm curious how you thought maybe he did and and that left-hand side in general, because we had a huge left-hand bias in the way we attacked, but I, I thought it looked very congested and, and we didn't have a lot of joy getting through, especially in the first half. Yeah, first half floated away a little bit. We played okay, a little bit slow. The reason for me for being slow is I felt that from the back, um, I felt that Rob Holding had too many touches and he just needed to get the ball out of his feet quicker and get it to Ben White quicker. Uh, he was fine passing to the left, but passing to the right, I felt he did it. He, so he struggles to pass out, out of his body, open himself up. And with Ben White, when he's there, he can do things with both feet. And I felt more people are in play and they move better. So we were, by the way, Burnley are rubbish, right? So it's not, there's not an issue here with, with our players. They jog through the game in the back. So on Tierney's side, so we, we play in pods, didn't we? I said it on the instant reaction. We play in pods. So we have Martelli, Smith-Rowe and Tierney on that side. Smithrow was very conservative early on in the game. And I was worried about him, actually. I said it at half-time. I thought maybe um, Eddie should come on. We played two strikers and basically have Lacazette doing what Smithrow was doing, but get Eddie into the box because Lacazette's got some sort of phobia, right? So um, so um, Martelli, again, a 20-year-old, a little bit leggy, not perfect on the day. And Tierney doing his thing. I think what I saw, and I, I know I heard James say it earlier, and I, couldn't, I can't help but repeat it because I felt the same was the style of crosses that we were putting in. We needed to smash the ball in low. 
test them a little bit more. But to do that, you need to have people moving in the box. Do you remember? Do you remember any near post runs in this game? Anybody collapsing the defense? Anybody trying to move people around? We weren't. We don't want to be in there. We don't want to yeah. be in there. And this is the problem. So you focus on the crosses. Fine, that, that's your prerogative. We put in, I don't know how many, 20, 30 crosses we put in. For yeah, me, 30 cross- if you count the set pieces, yeah. Yeah, so and so all the corners were on point. They won them all, right? So they weren't far away. You know, we won a few. Rob Holding always does one of his clearance headers over the bars. We wanted to head it in. But yeah, we, for me, it's your movement in the box that causes gaps and spaces. And that's what we miss. And that's why I thought we needed... This was a day when I actually missed the Bamiyang, funny enough, just for movement. You know, what Lacazette does, I'm afraid... And by the way, we do need to have a podcast on centre-forwards, full stop, and what it means to us <laughs> and what we think it is. Because Tim was talking some very interesting stuff there, and I didn't want to hijack the podcast, but I, we need a podcast on that, right? So, but There you Lacazette, go. Stay tuned for the centre-forwards podcast. <laughs> Lacazette, mate, he doesn't just hide behind the centre-half. He hides behind the full-back as well. Right, you've literally, you need some NASA equipment to find him in that box on occasions, right? So it's just not happening. He doesn't put himself into those areas where he's going to hurt. You know, he doesn't do it and never has. He's a cutback merchant on the edge of the box. And he's, and he's, he's a second forward, he's a nine and a half. And Lacazette's best games, when I get excited and happy for him, is hard-working games in adversity. That's his best games. They're never, he ripped it today up front, ran the size, 10 shots. They're not those sort of games. They're hardworking, defensive, take a few kicks, link-up play. And by the way, we're over-indexing the link-up play. We're not talking coy flicks around the corner and stuff like that. We're talking about <laughs> just get your body there and hold it. And we're over-indexing it in our mind. It's, it's not that. It's, we're not getting enough from that player. It's not. It's not personal with him. It's just that player. And and so for me, that dictates the service as much, right? So when you've got good movement in the box, your service looks better. I think we're a bit dumb in the last third, so I agree with your point. I actually thought Tina was quite influential on the day, and I, and I thought he did some good things around the pitch. But the final pass wasn't perfect for him. But I will say Burnley defended that central zone by the penalty spot exceptionally well. Yeah. You know, and, you, and they are well-practiced at it. And you just have to hold your head up. And that is why, in the ground, everybody was saying, before this game started, please can we get a 1-0. It was never a 4-0 game. It was a 1-0 They have a good defensive record, by the way. Like, like they may be bottom of the table, but I think there are like 12 teams that have conceded more goals than they have. Yeah, this is is a tough journey. And because they hadn't played since January the 2nd, their brains were mentally fresh to last you know, sometimes you can fatigue people by moving them around when they're playing every three, four days. But now nah, they haven't played. They can deal with this. They've got room in the well to deal with this. And we missed our two, two I think, two big chances for me. We missed them. And that didn't, that just encouraged them to um, to kick on and hold out. Yeah. And I mean, look, the, the emotion of this game too and the, the crushing nature of failing to get the three points here, I think was escalated by what happened in the Leicester Spurs game because like 
if Spurs lose to Leicester there, like it looked like they were, and you get the draw here, you're deeply, deeply disappointed, but you're still in a really good position versus them in particular, and generally in the table. Because our position in the table is still okay. I mean, there's a lot of that's top four gone going around, and I understand why people have that feeling. I understand we just had a month where we went out of both domestic cups. We haven't scored a goal um, since January 1st. It's like 480 minutes. Like, I get it. One goal in the month. You can say it however you want. But in the league, like we're still in a decent position, but going from Spurs losing to Spurs winning to then failing to beat Burnley, the bottom team at home. And it's like, I, I do get why the mood went where it went. Tim, one thing that I think we kind of have to talk about, I, like this is hard. Cause I think most of us on this podcast do not enjoy this part of the conversation around football. Cause it's just not fun. There's very little fun stuff to say about it, but they should have been down to 10 men pretty clearly. Right. I mean, I just, I just don't understand because you can give reds for those fouls, but you know, to not give two yellows, like I just don't understand it. I don't understand. You know, this does seem to happen quite a lot. I, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you react to it? Cause, Cause my tendency is to say, okay, I get it, but still beat the bottom team 11 V 11. You know, that's my, that's mm. my instinct. I don't think you can do a podcast on that game without touching on the fact that like, they very, very clearly should have been down to 10 men. Yeah, I think <clears throat> sometimes what happens with these incidents, the, the order in which the fouls happen is is very, very important. Party against Liverpool on Thursday, if those fouls yeah, second was bad. Yep, are in right. a different yep. order, yep. I don't think he's sent off. I think the first one, he gets a yellow and a warning. Second one, it would be like, okay, last chance. Um, and And the opposite kind of happens here in that, the, the first, I think the first one isn't punished, right? And then he gets a yellow for the second one and you think, ooh, or, or was it, yep. I can't remember if it was the other way around or if the first one was particularly egregious. The first one's not punished. I think I think it was the elbow to the face of Lacazette, right? Yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. It's not punished at all. Yeah, it, and so it's a weird one because on one hand, I don't think it's an absolute oh, Sorry, was it, to, it was to Gabriel. I apologize, right? Yeah. It was to Gabriel. Yeah, and like Honestly, right. can I just ask you a question? Like, if Gabriel goes down theatrically there, yep. do you, do you, it all turns out different. He's he's too honest. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And same for Tierney, by the way, um, to, because I believe they reviewed that decision and decided not to, well, not to interfere, basically. Not necessarily that it wasn't a red, but that it wasn't a clear and obvious error. And Tierney, like, sorry, mate, stay down. Stay down, do a Lacazette, stay down, hold your ankle. The, the amount of times you see challenges in games where the referee's not going to do anything and then he sees the player going down, he goes, oh, okay, I'll book it. Like, just uh, like, I know you like your hard man image. I know you like wearing your short sleeves and all of that. Go down, stay down, okay? Get him booked. Just as simple as that. Like, it's a booking anyway. Like, you're not diving. You're just letting the referee know. A little bit like when someone gets a handful of your shirt in the penalty area, right? And it's not enough to knock you over, but you go down to draw attention to it. Just little things like that. Like, that that means more than, you know, you looking like a bit of a hard man, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. There. yeah. So, uh, so I and look, I, I want to be consistent. I've said before, I think the ceiling for red cards should be higher. So, like, in general... Like, I, I'm not absolutely disgusted by it. I think on another day he could have got sent off. It does, f 
feel, and I think with a lot of evidence, it has to be said, because obviously we're Arsenal fans and we're emotionally involved and we're biased and everything. But I think there's a lot of evidence that Arsenal players get sent off for that. And there was a stat doing the rounds about Burnley not having had a red card for like three years or something. And you look at it. 111 games, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. And you you think, fucking hell, really? Like, really? Um, and so it does show you that there is too much refereeing on reputation. And I think it does also show you that I think it's quite easy to give Arsenal players red cards. And I don't really know how you solve that because, uh, you know, I, I'm not, like I say, I'm not really like disgusted or outraged by it, but it, it does feel a bit like Arsenal players have had <laughs> a, a lot of red cards for like quite a bit less than that. And it does feel not just feel, I think it really looks like there is a very strong, like, oh, it's Burnley and that's what Burnley do, so it's all right. And it's like, no, fuck that. You don't referee like that. Sorry, you referee based on what you see. But like in general, I'm happy for the the kind of the ceiling for red cards to come up. And I think like really bad tackles should be sent off. But like the two booking type stuff, I think there is a bit too much of that. Um, but I'm not under the illusion that this is some kind of new standard that's been set. I think it's just a Burnley player and the referee thinks, oh, well, it's Burnley. That's what they do. Yeah, it is It is pretty ridiculous. I mean, when you look at some of the really, really borderline stuff we've had players go for and you look at some of the stuff that Burnley got away with in this game. I mean, uh, uh, Lennon should have been carded too. He got away with a ton of shit. That, you know, they let the goalkeeper time waste. And like, I do want to say one thing though about them going down to 10 men. They weren't attacking. I mean, they until the very, very end of the game where they had a few counters, they basically did not attack at all. If you want to see something funny, look at us. Uh, Scott does a, a number of visuals for the uh, visualizations for the, the data in the game. And one he does is field tilt, which basically shows the percentage of the final third possession by team. And it's all Arsenal for the entire game. And like my point about this is that had they gone down to 10 men, I don't know that that changes the problem we had to solve. The problem we had to solve wasn't defending them. The problem we had to solve was cutting them apart, opening them up, getting you know, getting getting in behind, getting through. So I don't know that changes much. I, I do want to get off this, go to the second half. There's some big stuff to discuss in the second half and the substitution stuff. But Clive, do you want to finish on the refereeing? Because I, I know I just you, um, you want to keep players on the pitch. You've told I me do. That. I want to keep players on the pitch. I don't want to see games destroyed unless it's a violent act. Right, I would talk the ball or something violent. I, I said something. I felt it looked like a stamp to me on Tierney's calf, but I, I haven't seen it back properly. Right, and I, I almost I don't want to watch this game again yet. I'm not ready for it emotionally, but I I don't want. I want to be consistent. Players on the pitch, but what I will say is around sending us off. I'm a rugby fan as well, and when a player is going to be sent off, it's a big moment in a game. And it's really thought through with the TMO, the the, the linesman, sorry, the assistants, <laughs> the referee, and there's a group. They say, "Yep, do you all agree? Yep, the player's going off. It's going off." I think what we've seen recently with football, I think football needs to change. Sometimes the referee can just get out a card really, really quickly. Done. You're off, son. Go on. You've upset me. On you go. Two cards done. It's, the cards out of the pocket so quickly. Decisions are so quick. I'd like to see referees breathe a little bit longer and make sure they're doing the right thing because going down a man is a big deal these days because everyone's well coached. The game is massively changed. The product is changed. Before you do it, make sure it's done for the right reasons and maybe it's a bit more of a collective decision. 
I think football needs to think about that a lot more and not just these emotional cards that come out and suddenly the game's changed. So so in this game, I'm absolutely fine that Burnley stayed to 11. And if somebody thinks they saw something more violent than I did, and it, as you say, Elliot, it would not have changed the game in one iota. We had yeah. a low block to beat and that was it. Yeah, so so while I get the sense of injustice and I tend to agree with it, I, I think in terms of what it would have done for the game... Um, I'm not. I'm not sure we would have had a different problem to solve. Uh, it is. I think the real meat on the bone, though, for discussing this game is some of the stuff that happened in the second half and some of the substitutions. Um, you know, we are getting ready to look towards February as as the transfer window is going to be you know closing here in the next week. So there's a lot ahead. I should point out that obviously. February is um, Valentine's Day. If you celebrate that holiday with a partner, a loved one, someone special, um, Clive, you, you have any special things planned for Valentine's Day with your with your? I am going to have dinner. Wife? Yes, going to have dinner mm-hmm. on the Friday before Valentine's. Yes, already booked. Mm-hmm. I've done my work. Yeah. Yep. Tim, any good Valentine's plans? Celebrate? Don't um, celebrate? Well, what what I do is uh, Valentine's Day is actually on a different day in Brazil. It's in June, uh, and the reason for that is because Carnival. Uh, happens during oh, right. February, yeah. and nobody wants Valentine's Day during Carnival because that's when everyone cheats on their partner. <laughs> so, I mean, what I I mean, is my is my suspicion. <laughs> <laughs> so, what 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 I very cleverly do is when Brazilian Valentine's Day comes along, I say, "Oh no, no, we'll wait till British Valentine's Day." And when British Val or well, I guess it's more global, isn't it? The other, the February Valentine's Day comes along. Oh, we'll do the Brazilian one um, and flip backwards and forwards like that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, look, yeah. you romantic, you. <laughs> no, not really. Look, I, I do. I do both of them for the record. Okay. I, look, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to tell either of you how to do it, but I. I think I can impart some wisdom here, which is to say that for both of your Valentine's Day, it's pretty important that you get your uh, private areas properly shorn. That's what this is about. Oh yeah, this this was always just a long lead into the Manscaped promotion. I mean, I think you know that. But don't t- turn this ro- day of romance into Independence Day, is what it says here. Get the Performance Package 4.0, which includes a signature lawnmower 4.0, which is the absolute finest tool I have ever used for grooming myself. And you will feel the same way. It has ceramic blades, skin safe technology. You know what's not a good Valentine's present for your partner? Uh, looking like Edward Scissorhands went to, went to work on your private area. You don't want that. No, you want the Performance Package 4.0, Lawnmower 4.0, long battery life, um, a 4,000K LED spotlight, so you can see what you're doing. You can use it in the shower. It's got guards for different lengths. You can do your whole body with it, induction charging. The thing is absolutely sensational. And they got all kinds of deodorants and toners and liquid formulations and uh, 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 what's the thing you spray on your body? Cologne. That's the stuff that someone would spray. I wouldn't, obviously, but but normal people would. So, yeah, definitely go ahead and get the Performance Package 4.0. You go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping. And when they say, what did you get me for Valentine's Day? You can say, allow me to show you. Uh, and then that's how the good times start. I mean, I wouldn't know because I'm married with kids, but I imagine that's how the good times start. Um, but, but, maybe... You're not celebrating Valentine's Day because you devote your life to work like I am currently doing. And if that is the case, you might need to hire some talent. I know Arsenal needs to hire some talent, that's for sure. If you don't have the right players on the right on the field with the right skills, you can't win. The same goes for your business. And that's why Indeed is a fast, simple way to make sure you're hiring the best talent. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Imagine if it was like that in the transfer window. Imagine. You only pay if they're good. That's how transfers should work, I think. I think. Well, anyway. Uh, Indeed makes it easy to hire great talent. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. Join more than three biz- three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Clive, is that enough of that? It is, sir. It is. Clive, yes. Uh, Indeed. Um, Okay. So, who's huzzah? Uh, Tim, second half. We'll get to the substitutions in a minute. I mean, obviously, we had that period where I thought it was going to happen, and and mm. it is so, it is so unfortunate because I do think for a game where people are going to come away really pissed off and aggravated and feel like we stink and all that stuff, like that was a really good period, a really good period of football where we were yep. just cutting them open, had them on the ropes, created good chances. It all sort of clicked, and I think in part because the young players who had been a little muted, Martinelli, Smith Rowe. Saka, I think Odegaard was really, really good during that period too. They all sort of came into the game and came alive. And I'm sort of curious if you have any thoughts on who or what or why that period was was so dominant for us and and, and what changed. And and then obviously like we just didn't get we didn't get the finish that we needed. Yeah, a little bit of uh, injection of energy and purpose. <clears throat> I think I think um, probably a little bit of the positioning sorting out, particularly on that kind of left with Smith, like the Smith Rowe and Tierney thing, didn't really work um, in the first half. But I thought Smith Rowe, I mean Smith Rowe, just came to life. I'm not sure how tactical that was, and and how much it was just um, you know uh, appreciating game state and things like that. Um, and I'm sure we'll come on to this. I, I kind of think the game died a little bit for us when he went off as well. Yep, that's um, coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, there were some moments in the first half as well. Not not many, but there were some moments where we put it together, um, but particularly through Erdegaard. Um, and and I think, like I think that really, I'm not sure there was a massive adjustment made. Maybe uh, you know, maybe I've missed something there i mean so i think like burnley did something slightly different to what they usually do in that like they don't have wood anymore and they didn't have barns so instead of going high to their attackers they were going for the channels right um in in, yeah instead of going for the long high ball they were they were just pumping the ball into our channels um and and i kind of think that maybe we just became a little bit more, um, I don't want to say cavalier, but I think we were a bit more cognizant of the threat that Burnley were actually posing um, and maybe lost, I guess, a little bit of the handbrake. But honestly, I think probably a lot of it was just momentum um, Mm. as much as anything. Um, You know, maybe someone smarter than me tactically spotted, you know, some kind of adjustment or something like that. But I, I just think it was maybe, you know, Arsenal getting into that period of the game where, you know, you're warm, 
um you know but you're not you're not tired yet and i think we look very tired in the last kind of 15 minutes or so which may be that along with the substitution i think probably prevented us from sustaining that momentum but i can't say i spotted anything like tactical that was very very different um i I think it was maybe just like an amalgamation of you know like usually something happens to lift the game right like something sometimes it might be a tackle sometimes it might be a pass sometimes it's like a, a feeling of injustice about something but just something lifts the game a little bit and i think that started to happen and then i think we kind of killed it um with the substitution yeah yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, with Smithrow in particular, he started to do what he does best, which is, you know, sort of get on the ball, straight runs with the ball at his feet. Um, you know, he hasn't played a ton, and I don't think he's looked fantastic. But, like, you know, it's it's worth pointing out that the guy has had been used mostly as a sub for a long period of time, and he started the game pretty static, and I, I don't think he really understood what his role was there in the left side of the three. And... And he came into the game in that period. And so I am surprised he came out because once he started to get on the ball and, and understand his role and look like he was really coming alive in the game, we did look a lot more dangerous. I also thought that, you know, we were varying what we were trying to do. Odegaard floated some really nice in-swinging crosses to the far post and Martinelli almost got to one. I, you know, so I think we were starting to figure out how to pick the lock a little bit, Clive. But I mean, you know, and maybe there were a few decisions that were wrong, like Saka, Saka's becoming more of a shooter, which long-term is going to be great because he's going to be more of a goal scorer. But like there was one where we had a really, really good attack, and he chose to shoot it right into the shins of the defender when he had players he could give it to. And obviously Lacazette missed the one chance that he had. And there were just a few moments when I thought a better decision or a better touch or finish obviously could have made the difference. Um, you know, there was one... I feel like there was one really exceptional save... Um, from, a, from the corner, uh, flat corner of Modegaard. Oh, yeah, Smith-Rowe S- came Smith-Rowe in. was a second-man yeah. run, yeah, and he, he fed it through a, a group of bodies, and yeah. th- that could have been the moment right there too. So do, do you have Very a thought on, on why that period was you know, think, was our best of the game? What, what yeah, changed? Yeah, I played up after having a chat with my boy about this, and, the, and he gave me this. It's not me. <laughs> he actually said, <laughs> he actually said that the period that we were hot in was the period when most of our better players got hot together. And I think that was the key. There were moments and in individual moments earlier on, but not enough people playing in groups. There was one rat attack move in the first half where Odegaard had to shot. And that was the first time we saw like a collective group break through them. You know, it was very individualistic at the time and waiting for somebody to do it. And every time I go to a live game, you come away with different feelings, right? And, Whenever I talk about Smith Rowe with you guys, I'm pretty cool about him. I can, you know, obviously you can see his talent, and but you know, I just think, yeah, I can always see Saka from a distance, always see him, right? So um, when I go to the game live, I can only see Smith Rowe. I mean, he is. I'm telling you now, when he gets his body right, we have got one hell of a player on our hands here. You know, the way he receives it turns around and goes, and when he goes. He is gapping people. You know, you look at Martelli, you think, well, he's quick. He's obviously quick because of his cadence, his movement. Same with Saka. Same for Bamiyang. You know they're quick. Just look at their bodies. Smith-Fro, he is quick. And he is very intelligent. And a big reason why we were good for that period was him. You know, he's the, memory, totally I, yeah. he's the memory I walked away with. I just looked at him and thought, 
you are a difference maker. And Tim, we were speaking earlier, weren't we, about Tobin Heath? And, mate, I, that's that's who this guy's going to be. He's going to be a difference maker in that inside fourth channel into third channel. And he's going to make a difference because he literally just surveys the game, looks at it, and then just to, he's got the ability now and the size. He looks taller to me and bigger and stronger to say, yeah, I'm, I'm having it now with you. And I'm going to take it and turn around and run, run at you. Pop it off, run past you, receive it here. When he gets his fitness right, we have got a player that's going to be very, very difficult to to ignore. That was my walkaway memory from the game. And, I, and, I, and there may be reasons why he came off that we're not aware of. But, man, it did feel wrong. You know, um, it did feel wrong when he came out at that period of time. And at the moment I saw it, I thought, well, they're not dumb. They can see what I've just seen. There must be a reason behind it. You know, and, um, I just think it's a hierarchy. He wanted to bring on another striker, and of, if you look at the Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli, Smith Rowe, and Lacazette, the one in the hierarchy who is sort of not highest well, on the totem pole. Ellie, at half time, when I gave you the half time thoughts, I was thinking get Smith Rowe out, play Lacazette in the ten, and just get Eddie in the box where he is a box player and keep him out the outside areas. What did we do? We keep Smith Rowe as a hot patch. We take Smith Rowe out. And then put Eddie in a Smith Rowe role. Yeah, I'm thinking weird. that's not right, you know. Mm-hmm. So that to me is not right. This had to be box presence to move people, collapse people, create lanes for passes, cutbacks, etc. You needed some activity in the box, so we decided to vacate that space, right? So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a challenge there. But Smith Rowe is a player. All we need to do is just make sure he's healthy, because his goals were fantastic for us in December and we've missed them since he's had a bit of a body breakdown. So, Well, and everybody's a little different, right? Because like Sack is a player who looks clean and decisive and, and dangerous and just a, a good quality player 90 minutes very rarely feel like he's putting a foot wrong. Maybe Smith throws one of those players that he is more of a moments player because I don't think he was good in the first half at all, but he could have had a goal and an assist very easily in this game. He had a, our nearest chance at a goal with a shot that's really well saved through a bunch of bodies with a great run off a corner. And then he's got that sensational run to the byline for the cutback to Lacazette. And like, you need players like that, right? Who maybe aren't clean all the time, but are decisive. I mean, Alexis was famously like that and he would drive you nuts, but he did win a hell of a lot of games too. So yeah, I I mean, I I didn't totally understand that, Tim. And I I thought that there were really two mistakes from a, a, a coaching standpoint in-game management standpoint here. One was taking Smith Rowe off, and the other is, I know why we started Ben White at right back. I understand Mm. that. But with 20 minutes to go, nil-nil at home to the bottom side, I I don't think, you know, I don't think you need three center backs holding Mm -hmm. White and Gabriel. And I realize White wasn't playing, strictly speaking, as a center back. But I think you can take holding off, move White to center back, and bring on someone like a Tavares or one of your young attackers, if you prefer, but Tavares is two-footed, and add overlap, give Saka some support, have more threat on both wings. Because it's not that White was doing anything wrong, but he was not, you know, he's not Tavares. He's not a a straight-line runner. He's not someone who's going to overlap and put it in the box. So, like, you just could have added so much more threat to win the game with a very simple change of taking mm. off a center back and bringing on a more natural attacking right-sided player. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take both on the Smith Rowe decision, but also on the not making that 
that kind of change. Because that one, on a day when we had a very light bench, that one did seem like it was available and sort of obvious. Yeah, looking at the bench before the game, you, you kind of looked at it and think, well, there's only two players that, that yeah. would definitely come on, uh, Tavares and, and Inketia. So firstly, on the decision to take Smith-Rowe off, I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, like 100% it has to be a fitness thing, right? Because um, we know we know he's not a hundred percent, and I guess maybe Arteta felt a little bit burned because he pushed Tommy Asu on Thursday night, and you know we lost him, and maybe he didn't want to repeat um, that you know error if you if you want to call it an error. Um, albeit, I think his choices were pretty limited on Thursday night, so maybe he had that playing in the back of his mind. I think. You've got 18 is, days though, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the only thing. And I mean, when, when was he subbed off? It was, it was 77 minutes. So like yeah. he can't go 13 more minutes with 18 days. Yeah. I don't know. That, I, you know. I guess, you know, <clears throat> it, it depends whether there was a conversation with the bench or something, or maybe at halftime he said, look, I, I don't think I can give, I, I mean, I have my doubts that a player would say that, but you know, maybe he had a conversation at halftime and was like, look, I, I think I've got, or they decided, half an hour at the most um you know so it it could have been predetermined i i think that so we know that arteta doesn't like to change the system basically so for me the only point in bringing ketia on is if you go 442 and have him and lacazette up front particularly given the amount of crosses that were going in um, and you know, in Ketia, he he's you know he's he's not going to out jump Ben Me, but he scored some headed goals. He's like he can get headed chances. We know that because he's got a good appreciation of space. So if you're in a pattern where you're being forced wide to put crosses in, I mean, having two strikers makes some sense to me. So I think if you're going to put in Ketia on, don't put him on and then ask him to do what Smith Rowe was doing. That's not like I think you go four four two, and I, and I think then. You can make the other change as well that you're talking about there. Tavares on at right back for holding, and then you've got you've got Tierney and you've got Tavares who can whip those crosses in. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely ideal and that definitely wins us the game. It it maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's not the ideal, but what we were doing definitely wasn't going to. So I I really think that you know yeah, Inketia for Smith Rowe and then asking him to do Smith Rowe things. No. That was never, not only was that never going to work, that was always probably going to make us weaker. Even if I, you know, I don't think Nketiah had a nightmare or anything. It's just that's, that's not really where you want him. Not, not particularly not in this kind of scenario. And, and yeah, absolutely. I'd have put Tavares on at right wing back and just tried to get some kind of overlap. And even if it's not, you know, Tavares whacking crosses into the box, we could see that Saka was getting isolated. He was getting the ball, but not in dangerous positions. He didn't have that overlap. And, um, and yeah, I was disappointed not to see that. I, I have to say like before the game started with white at right back, I know we were forced into that, but I, th- I thought that that might be a good weapon for us. And the reason for that is I thought, like, when you're playing a 4-4-2 block like Burnley, you've got to move them around with the big switch. And I thought, actually, yes. Ben White has got that big switch. So even if he if he's not going to overlap, him hitting Martinelli, I mean, look at, think back to that Martinelli chance against City where it's Ramsdale who just whacks the ball out to Martinelli and you know moves moves like city over to one side and Martinelli can get the got Cancelo one on one i thought ah oh, that that move that that's up for like that's potentially up for grabs here you know martin a uh, big big 
uh, diagonal from White to Martinelli. Didn't really see it. And ditto as well, Kieran Tierney. And I, I know we've spoken about him, but I, I really think now Tierney needs to add things to his game. It's it's a little bit agree, it's a little yeah. bit PlayStation. It's a little bit head down, whack into the box. And um and and I think I think that diagonal to Saka was on a lot and Tierney didn't I either didn't see it or just didn't feel he could make it. And and I just think those big diagonals, you need to keep doing those um in, in lieu of anything else. Um, when you know you're you're on limited options, and and I don't think either fullback really gave that to us as much as they could have. I thought that was an avenue to hurt Burnley that we didn't really explore enough. But having you know once it got to the last twenty minutes, that's kind of off the menu. So yes, put Tavares on and fine, just keep whacking crosses into the box to Lacazette and Inketia, and then you've got you know potentially you've got Inketia being the first line of attack, attacking the six-yard line, attacking the front post. And then, you know, you've got Lacazette likes to be the second line of attack and possibly something drops to him. Um, A little bit like it did, you know, when he scored that equaliser against Palace a few months ago. Something just drops to him in the box. And not not ideal, not perfect. Not saying that's a, a brilliant way to play that definitely would have won us the game, but it it was something better than what we were doing. Well, I think it also, Tim, I mean, for me, one of the things I thought like that switch could do is give Saka more ability to hurt them because he was very isolated on the right. And like Odegaard tried to make some underlapping runs and things like that occasionally. But like if he has the overlapping Tavares, he can either give it to him or he can then cut inside on his left foot if the defender follows Tavares, right? And like there just wasn't that support for Saka. So I thought it was a little bit marginal. I have to say that being being isolated is not always bad. Right, not isolated against two men is is. I I, I want to I want to be isolated against three men, because okay. if he's isolated so against three men, no, but someone's open. You, exactly, exactly, Elliot, you've about nailed it. I Arsenal left him one on one consistently. They left. They wanted him to yeah. have the ball in those spaces, Kyrie Irving style, one on one. We'll leave you alone. Do your magic. You normally get it out of there into the box. I think. That was the bit that went wrong <laughs> when he went into the box, when he came out of there. He he ran across people, got fouled about four or five times the edge of the area, got free kicks. Yeah. There were so many switches to him from the left-hand side. The, I think your Sammy point hit the, some beautiful – to be fair to Sammy, yeah. by the way, just since we did pick on him, in the second half, Sammy started pinging some beautiful switches to – to Saka in space on the right. Just in the end, that. Saka was so exhausted. He could, he could barely lift his leg to cross the ball towards the end. <laughs> Seriously, he couldn't get any distance. He had so he got 40-odd passes, I believe, switched out to him. That's a lot, right? That's a lot of passes, right? So he, he, did, he did his absolute best. I do take your point about Nuno, though. And we're talking about, you know, some of the off-the-pitch stuff. That's a bit of a worry to me that he didn't see any minutes in this game. He he should be trusted in this game as a senior professional, and and that's a worry. So I know there are people out there when we lose or don't win, people bring up names like Saliba, Gwendozi, Urzel, Abamyang, and all the relationship issues that happen. I hope we've not got another one pending here because this one's important. This boy can play. You Paul know, he's got a massive. Just for the record, <laughs> sorry again. Paul thinks there's an issue there, just for the record. Yeah, I hope there's not an issue there because he can play. He's young, he can play. He's had a massive impact, so so much so that Man City were looking at him. He's got he's got a lot of physical potential, and in these sort of games where no one's attacking, and you just need to have some raw chaos factor, 
to go forward and put people under pressure, I would have thought he'd been perfect for this game and um, for for 25 minutes at the end. And that disappoints me, actually. So I, I do take that point, Elliot. And I, can, I and I agree with it that you enter. Can I stay with you for a second, Clive? Just just curious. Um, Tim mentioned Ramsdale, and it does occur to me that like he had another one of those sort of weird games where he he almost punched into his own net. He kicked long a few times, like when when we were chasing the game in the second half and they weren't pressing us. He kicked long a few times to Saka that just like came right back at us. I mean, he was fifty percent, I think, on on long kicks, which I I don't really understand doing when when they had dropped away. I I thought it was a edgy. I thought it was an, an another mixed game for Ramsdale during a period where he's had a few eyebrow raising situations. So a- anything there for you? Yeah, I've been I've been saying it a little while now. He's edgy at the moment. He's edgy. He's a little bit. You know, getting away with a few things, shall we say? You know, but he's so engaged in the game that he he can get away with it. He's so agile and so athletic. That he he had some uh, adventurous times off his line as well. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he, it's almost like you can almost see, like the Liverpool. Remember the Liverpool goal when sorry when Shaka got sent off, and some people were saying he should have come. Well, he started to come now, and it's a bit it's a bit edgy, but it all worked out for him. He is literally learning right in front of us and adding layers to his game. Before he came here, we didn't know he could kick it. You look at his numbers now, kicking-wise, they're pretty good. Now we expect him to be sticking on the sixpence. He's learning his craft as a 23-year-old in front of us, and it's going to be moments. I think this two-week break was going to do him a lot of good. You know, it's a shame. I think Gabriel's been picked by Brazil. Is that right? I think he has. He's the only player that may not be there. I wish he wasn't going with Brazil. Because he's somebody else that looks like I just need to sit down for a week. Do you know what I mean? I just need to sit down. I'm I'm fine. I can still do my job. But that crisp decision making, that sharpness, is just a little bit off. A lot of these players that we have in our team have been overexposed many, many games in a row. We're the youngest team in the league and they're good players. But they look like they're a little bit mentally tired. And I I can't wait to see them when they come back from this break, hopefully mentally fresh and, and physically fresh, and we'll see the best of them. Can I just yeah. um, yep, just quickly on Ramsdale? <clears throat> I, I think I, I'm not massively worried about it. I think there's just like there's a moderation issue there. Like we know that he's like an all-action goalkeeper. He likes to be involved. You know, he likes to make firm kind of actions and that's great like 90% of that is great exactly what Arsenal needed sometimes maybe he tries to get involved where he shouldn't that's just an experience issue um frankly and, and the more football he's playing for Arsenal the quick the more quickly that will happen there, there are times when you don't need to engage and get involved um and and those, those times usually they're few and far between but you know, it's it's just like it's just a moderation issue, isn't it? Like you know, when you're out, when you're in your twenties, you go and get pissed every weekend, don't you? Because you can. And then when you get into your thirties, you think, do you know what? Maybe I'll only do that like once every couple of months. And and that's that's all this is. Like he'll he'll work that out. I think he might not. He might just always be this. Uh, this player but yeah it's it's just an issue of knowing uh, do you know what actually maybe I won't throw myself at that maybe I won't go for the big hero ball here I don't think it's yeah. a big deal personally agreed yeah no, I, I don't think it's a big deal either and I think <clears throat> these big personality goalkeepers the, the elite best goalkeepers who are good with the ball at their feet who make incredible saves the Allisons the Edersons Ramsdale like they their mistakes tend to be calamities and kind of hilarious because 
they are higher risk players. They have the ball at their feet more. They might try a Cruyff turn. They might try to stride out into the midfield and and play a pass from you know forty yards from their own goal. Um, and so when an Ederson or an Allison makes a mistake, it's almost hilariously bad because they're putting themselves in unusual situations. The real mediocre keepers. The funny thing is, it, it's not the calamities. It's the the one they probably should have saved, but they didn't get to, and that happens a little too often. Or they can only pass it three yards or fifty, but not fifteen. And so you have to take the rough with <clears throat> the rough with the smooth with these kind of keepers. Tim, <clears throat> before we finish up. I'm always a little bit loath to, to go over the top praising Gabriel Martinelli because I'm such a Gabriel Martinelli guy that mm. I think people sort of just roll their eyes at me now. So I'll let you do it. I mean, I, I feel like this guy does one of two things. Either scores, he assists, or he looks like he's very, very close to doing it. And I thought Burnley just about kept him out. I think there was a floated in-swinger from uh, Odegaard where he almost got there to head it in. But like even the little stuff, when the ball comes over his head in the air, the way his, he controls a ball mm. out of the air – just so soft, so instant and on the go. To me, I mean, it's still, I I know he didn't get the goal here and maybe he didn't have the big, big chance, but he still looks like a player for me that has more, more of a ceiling coming. And I, I, I'm curious, like how you look at just his development, his performance in this game. And I think the revelation of what we found with him now that he's starting, you know, game in, game out. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's adding layers to his game. So that like you say, there's a few technical things that, you know, people questioned his technique um a little bit um when it when he first arrived and, and I think that's that's kind of fine, but the the player I'd seen little bits of um before he came here and, and at international level was that actually he's he's a better technical player than he looks. Um, and, and we're beginning to see that a little bit now. Um, and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing him go past people with little kind of flicks and tricks that are so quick that you don't really see them until you look at the replay. You don't see he's done like a little flip flap um, or something like that because he, he's getting more confident. Basically, he's getting more confident in those small spaces, which is really good. Um, and and I think that's a big part of what's making Arteta trust him so much and making him like a 90 minute game out game in game out player because previously there was probably a question like oh he might make something happen but he might lose the ball or he might give it away or something like that but he's developed that and I think what we're developing Elliot is is a proper clutch player um here and I know that's weird Mm -hmm. to say after a nil-nil draw where we're bemoaning the lack of a clutch player you need more than one of them obviously but for me like like him and Saka and Smith Rowe, uh, like they're all just beginning to develop that, you know, going beyond potential and becoming guys that you rely on um, week in, week mm-hmm. out. And, and nothing shows you this more than Arteta's behavior with this player. Now, I, I know we're not big on options at the moment, but, you know, Martinelli a couple of months ago was struggling to get off the bench for a start. And then when he did start, it was like 45 minutes or 60 minutes, 90 minutes every week at the moment. And that shows you Arteta puts a big emphasis on the technical. That shows you he has no technical questions about this player anymore. And therefore, he can also develop that kind of being decisive in the final third thing. And I, and I always felt like if Arsenal were going to win this game, he was probably going to be the player to break it open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, just and add on, I think, I just, yeah, oh, please clap. Sorry, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, because I, I no, think it's an important point. Um, you know, Tim was talking about layers there to Martinelli, but I, that's again, that's that's what I walked away with from the game. I'm looking at these players, and I can see the layers 
adding on to them. I know it's not the right time for people to absorb this on a nil-nil against the bottom team in the league, but I'm telling you, mate, I'm telling you, Smithrow, I can see it. Martelli's obviously, he would never last in games, three in a week like this, no chance. You know, he'd be off, you know. Now we're looking to him. Saka's getting shots off, much many more shots in the game, looking like a forward now rather than an auxiliary wing backstroke midfielder. He's looking like a forward. If he develops that shot into a top postage stamp like Ziyech did at the weekend, then the league has got a problem. You know, and whether and people will have critiqued Sammy, but you know my views, twenty one, centre of a midfield, Arsenal Football Club, running it on your own. Well done. Well done, you know. And as for Martin Odegaard, I mean Gee whiz, he is literally telling people where to pass the ball. I mean, he is three passes ahead of everybody else. You know, and that wasn't a player yeah, I saw he's, last He's year. really improved. It's hard to see because we're in a rough patch, but he's honestly, he's Elliot, just watch him. And he's literally telling people where to pass it like, way before they've even received the ball. It's, like, it's incredible, his brain of the game and how to create. And, and I've been so impressed with him last two games because – He's put himself into areas, put himself into positions that are not his strength, and he's done it with 100% commitment to get us going forward. And it hasn't worked out, but I've been more impressed with him in, in adversity than I, than I ever thought I would be. And I, it's hard for people to accept at the moment, but these players are growing. And hopefully when they get their, their freshness back, we'll be able to see it with results. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I do want to just speak for people that are really frustrated right now and and really don't feel like things are going in the right direction or really unhappy. I have in my mind the way we played against Manchester City and the way we played in the games preceding that. And I, I still would like to believe that really that is closer to who we are than what's come since then. When you look at the team we put out against Forrest, I mean, that's that's not a suitable team. And you look at the teams we had to put out against Liverpool twice and, and, you know, losing Shaka playing with 10 men in the first leg. And then, you know, the team that was available in this game. And, and I, I, I am, and I look, I'm not one who's usually the, the patient guy, but I find myself able to compartmentalize this stretch, but I am sympathetic to the people who say, why is the situation with Arteta always, well, unless he has the exact 11 he needs, then it shouldn't, we shouldn't judge him. Like, I do get that. Like, you don't want to be in a situation where you can look great if every single player that you need to play your football is fit and ready and can start. Like At some point, whether it was those first three games of this season or it's the period we're in right now, when adversity hits and the squad isn't exactly what you want it to be, you've got to find a way through. And when it's the bottom team at home, and that's still a pretty darn good team we put out against a pretty bad Burnley, you do have to find a way through. So while I find myself feeling a little more sanguine and a little more patient, I understand the sentiment of people who are not feeling that way, but we have 18 days. We'll see if they get things sorted with the squad. There really are no excuses from there, though. We are in a position from this, from where we are right now still to control our destiny, so to speak, that if we win our games, if we take care of our business, we'll be where we need to be. I tweeted this out, but no one is running away with fourth place. No one's going to go on a run and run away with it. United have problems. Spurs have problems. West Ham. We So the real question is simply what happens next. And I, I think it's over to Adu to some extent with the rest of the window. And it's over to Mikel to show that he can 
right the ship from this period. We'll have a lot more to come. The content machine will keep rolling, if not the football, over the next 18 days. So take a deep breath. There's more to do. <clears throat> we don't have to fix it all right on this one episode. We'll fix it on the next episode. But we do love you for being here, and thank you so much. And I hope to eventually go home and be with my family and back to normal uh, there as well. So we'll see if that happens. Clive's on Twitter at ClivePFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Hang in there, everybody. You know, if the football doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger is what they tell me. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Wolves nil. No.